Well, for those that I have not yet met, my name is Matt Morton. I'm the teaching pastor at our Creekside campus. I'm glad to be here this morning. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, We will be talking about Solomon's experiment with pleasure. So I want to issue a word as we begin that the discussion this morning will be mature in its nature. We're going to, along with talking about Ecclesiastes 2 and some of the things Solomon tried to find meaning in, we will be talking about some issues of addiction to substances or sexuality and those types of things. So if you have children who are under the age of 12, uh, just use your discretion as to whether they are prepared to hear the discussion. It will not be graphic, but it will be a bit more mature in its nature this morning. As I thought about Ecclesiastes chapter 2 over the last couple of weeks and the subject of pleasure, it occurred to me that there are some pretty predictable ways in which all of us respond when we encounter something pleasurable in the world, whether it's food that we like or sex or beautiful things like music, there are some predictable ways in which we all respond. And I was able uh, just to identify what I'm going to call the five stages of pleasure. I made up the names for each of these five stages, uh, but I was going to illustrate them. I'm going to illustrate them this morning using some photographs from our middle daughter's second birthday party. Uh, this was from several years ago. This is our daughter, Abigail. So the five stages of pleasure. Uh, the first one is called anticipation. Okay? You see something you like that you anticipate will provide you with pleasure and you see that big grin on her face and she's thinking, this looks like something I'm going to enjoy. The next stage is preparation. Uh, In the preparation phase, you've gone beyond simply anticipating that it will be pleasurable to making plans to participate. So she reaches for the fork. She's now thinking, how am I going to engage in this pleasure, this cake. Of course, that takes us to the third stage, which is participation uh, with a little trepidation, a little fear. You can see it on her face. Will this be as good as it looked before I put it in my mouth? So she takes that first bite and that leads to stage four, which is dissipation or immoderation. You see that she has abandoned the fork And is just shoving it into her mouth with her fingers as fast as she can. That's the stage where you and I say, I want to dive as deeply as possible into the enjoyment of this pleasure. Even if it takes me beyond the bounds of propriety. So I will set the fork aside. And then stage five, which invariably follows, is what we might call desolation. (laughs) The plate is empty Your hands are dirty. Your face is dirty. There is the lingering evidence that you've participated in this pleasure, but there's nothing left except perhaps the anticipation of the next cake, the next buzz, the next moment of enjoyment. If it is an illicit pleasure or a sinful pleasure, you might in fact be left with guilt or shame on the heels of that pleasure. Now, I share that uh, partly for a laugh, but partly to highlight something that we all recognize, and that is that you and I are wired 
for pleasure. God has made our bodies and our minds in such a way that we want to respond and move toward those things that we believe will bring us pleasure, and we move away from those things that will bring us pain. And there are some predictable pathways through which we have been designed to experience pleasure. As Christians, We are not ascetics, and we're going to talk about this in the course of the morning, meaning we do not deny the value of pleasure in our lives, because at its best, when it is used as intended, uh, pleasure can direct us to the worship of God. At its best, pleasure is a reminder to us that we worship a good and generous God. But the danger that we face is to take something that is good, a good gift God made, and turn it into our God. We face the danger of saying, I am going to use a particular pleasure in my life, be it food or sex or spending money or entertainment or aesthetically beautiful things, music and art. I'm going to use that to provide my life with significance and meaning and joy. And the problem is that our pleasures were never designed to bear that much weight. When we press all of the weight of our lives on pleasure, it will crack under the strain and leave us disappointed. In fact, as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon is going to say that the harder he chased after pleasure, the more happiness seemed to be just outside of his reach. And so he will use this phrase, it is a striving after the wind. You chase after it, but you can't quite grab onto it. And the challenge that you and I face is that we live in a world, and particularly we live in a culture that tells us every day that the highest end of our lives is to chase happiness. And in a world that denies God and the supremacy of God in our lives, one of the primary ways in which we are tempted to chase after our happiness is through pleasure. When I led the college ministry here at Grace, I rarely would receive as much pushback and argument from a sermon as those sermons when I would say that the primary purpose of our lives is not to chase our happiness and our pleasure. Because it is offensive to many to undermine the foundational assumption of our culture that we exist for pleasure. And yet what we will see in the scripture is that true joy and true pleasure only comes when we chase after God and God gives us pleasure as a good gift, as a byproduct of knowing him and as a way to return praise back to him. As we have preached through the book of Ecclesiastes over the course of the semester, The overarching theme might be stated like this. Nothing on earth can satisfy our need for lasting significance. So over the course of the book of Ecclesiastes, we've talked about a variety of things that we might look to for lasting significance. Several weeks ago, we talked about wisdom and knowledge. 
and how that will never provide us with deep and lasting meaning. We talked about money and how that will not provide us with lasting meaning and significance or work and career. Uh, This week we're going to talk about pleasure itself. And what we will see in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is Solomon found this, that pleasure is a good gift but a disappointing deity. Pleasure is a very good gift, but a deeply disappointing and possibly destructive deity. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives." I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem, Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Now, as we read Ecclesiastes 2, and as we move into the passage also this morning, I want to highlight a reality that might not occur to us when we read that scripture. And it is this, you and I have the opportunity every day to repeat the experiment of Solomon. Because we live in a culture where if you want to find illicit sex, you can find it in spades, even if only on the screen of a device. If you want to stuff your face with all of the cakes and sweet treats that you can find, you can do it. If you want to fill your house with beautiful items on the walls and on the floors, you can do it even on a modest salary. If you want to numb your days and nights with entertainment and laughter, you can do it. We have no problem repeating the experiment of Solomon. And many in this room do it every single day. We have at our fingertips the opportunities for pleasure as great as those that Solomon had and then some he never even dreamed of. And yet what we will find in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is pleasure is a good gift that God has made to point us to who he is, but a disappointing deity. 
We are going to look at the first half of that proposition first this morning. Pleasure is a good gift because I want to start uh, with the positive because you're feeling a little bummed probably right now after the introduction, but pleasure is a good gift. As you look through Ecclesiastes even, even with the disappointment of Solomon's experiment, he affirms the value of pleasure. Look at Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Now remember, Solomon is a bit cynical throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, but even in the midst of his cynicism, he says, pleasure is a good thing. If you enjoy a good meal, if you enjoy good food and drink, if there's anything that brings you happiness, it is something that God has made. You cannot enjoy your life apart from God's generosity. God is not the God of the frowny face who desires to withhold. He is actually a generous God who loves to give good things to his people. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Solomon talks about intimacy between husband and wife. He says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. As I was studying for this sermon, I ran across a quote from the 20th century poet Langston Hughes, and he says it this way, folks, I'm telling you, birthing is hard and dying is mean, so get yourself a little loving in between, all right? From an Ecclesiastes perspective, that's not bad advice at all, as long as that pleasure is kept within the boundaries God intended. Because Solomon will say it too, life is difficult, life is painful, your work is hard, and God has given pleasure in part to diffuse the pain of a broken and sinful world and remind us of the goodness of God. So that James will say in James 1.17 that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God made everything good to enjoy. If you think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God placed them in the Garden of Eden with so much good food, they could not even take it all in. And he said, you may eat freely. Literally in Hebrew, eat, eat. Everything you need and more. To enjoy, and he gave them one another to enjoy companionship and sexual intimacy in their marriage, and told them, Be fruitful and multiply, because God is a God of good gifts. Early in the history of the Christian church, a movement developed called asceticism. And the idea behind asceticism was, if I will deny myself the pleasures of the world, bodily pleasures certainly like sex and food, but also even social pleasures like enjoying the company of others, if I deny myself the pleasures of this world, I can be closer to God. So the idea was that uh, self-denial was the path to intimacy with God. God. And so men and women said, we will move away from the world. And they began to move into convents and monasteries to get away from the world. 
and its pleasures. Uh, The movement probably reached its peak around the 4th or 5th century uh, with men like Simeon Stylites. Simeon Stylites was a monk, a, a, a hermit in Syria who tried to move out to the desert to get away from the pleasures of the world and from people who would lead him into sin. The problem that Simeon found was people kept following him into the desert to learn about his wisdom. And so he moved back into the city and he found an old pillar from an abandoned building and he climbed to the top of that pillar and the pillar was one square meter in area. He climbed to the top and there he remained at the top of that pillar for the next four decades of his life until he died. To be alone with God And boys from the village would climb up the pillar and bring him food and they would bring his waist down the pillar and that is how he lived the rest of his life because he had a belief that any enjoyment of God's good world was sinful. And yet Paul said in Colossians chapter two that often the rules we set up do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They have the appearance of of wisdom, but they are of no value in restraining fleshly indulgences because the problem of sin does not spring first from our bodies, but first from a sinful and wicked heart. Pleasure is a good gift that God has made. God made the pleasures of this world. When we think about the coming kingdom of Jesus. When Jesus returns and he rules over the earth, I think we're often tempted to think about it in purely spiritual terms. Maybe we will ride around on clouds and play terrible music on harps or whatever it may be, but the biblical imagery is so much different from that. If you look at Isaiah chapter 25, here's what Isaiah says about the kingdom of the Messiah. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Isaiah mentions the wine twice in the same sentence in Isaiah 25. Because he recognizes that God is a God who gives good gifts. And at the, uh, in Revelation 19, at the end of the scripture, when Jesus returns, you hear an invitation to come and join the marriage feast of the Lamb. Think about the last wedding banquet you attended and all the good food and drink that was spread before you. The marriage feast of the lamb will make that look like a little snack because God is a God who loves to give good gifts. And I think there are even men and women in this room who are afraid of joy and pleasure, maybe because you've been taught that it will lead you away from God. And so you have a hard time enjoying good food. You have a hard time even in your marriage with the concept of sexuality, perhaps because of guilt and shame from your past, and perhaps because you have an inherent belief that all pleasure is sinful. And yet we see in Ecclesiastes and even throughout the scripture that God made pleasure and joy. And what all have found who have tried to pursue God is that God wants to give good gifts, right? So pleasure is a good gift, right? But what Solomon also found was this, that although pleasure is a good gift, it's a disappointing 
and destructive deity. It's a disappointing and destructive deity. When we read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you saw that virtually any pleasure you can think of, Solomon tried it. So he tried laughter, uh, what we might call entertainment. And he says, I've just tried to see about laughter. And he says, laughter itself was madness and futility. It didn't accomplish anything. He says, I tried wine. And the way he describes it is he says, I tried to let my body be influenced by the wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. I heard one pastor put it this way. He got drunk and took notes to see if wine would provide him with meaning and significance. He says, I spent my money to surround myself with the beautiful things of this world, gardens and parks and ponds and every aesthetic pleasure, singers to fill my house with music. I spent my money on beautiful things He tried sex and illicit sex, all he could handle, the pleasures of men, many concubines. And his conclusion is, all is a striving after the wind and futility because when I try to make pleasure my God, it will disappoint me deeply because only God can provide the joy and significance that we need. Why is it that pleasure disappoints so deeply, particularly in comparison to God. Why is pleasure a disappointing deity? Let me give you a few reasons this morning. First of all, because it is short-lived. It simply does not last very long. Think about the greatest pleasures in your life. They don't last long, do they? They come and they go. We anticipate, we prepare, we think about them, we engage in the pleasure, and maybe it's a few moments, maybe it's a few hours, maybe it's even a year or two. You buy something beautiful and it lasts, but then it fades away. Pleasure is always short-lived. It never provides us lasting joy or significance. Uh, Last summer, our family had the opportunity to go to Disney World, Right, which is supposed to be the happiest place on earth, right? So we went to Disney World with our family and toward the end of our time at Disney World, my oldest daughter, who is now 11, decided that she wanted to do the rock and roller coaster. Uh, it's a real roller coaster and she wanted to, to do one of the fast ones. And so uh, my wife was not interested in doing that roller coaster. And so I stood in line with Elizabeth to do the roller coaster. And uh, we were out of the fast passes. It was kind of the end of the day. So we didn't get to go in the fast line by that point in the day. We stood in the normal line with everybody else. But right as we got to the line, a large group of high school students, about 200 of them, got in the fast pass line at the same time. And they came over the loudspeaker and they said, there will be longer than normal delays. So just be advised. And I looked at Elizabeth and I said, do you still want to do this? And she said, I still want to do this. And so for two hours, we waited in the line. Now it's 150 degrees in Florida in July. And we're standing in this line for two hours and we finally got there. Do you know how long the ride lasts? I had to look it up. 82 seconds. 82 seconds for two hours in the line. Now, it was worth it because it was an experience with my daughter. But from an economic perspective, that is a disastrous investment. 
Strictly from an efficiency standpoint, it makes no sense. But isn't that the way that the pleasures of our life always roll? We think about them. We imagine what they'll be like. We look toward whatever it is. And then we engage in it. It comes quickly and then it's gone. Whether it's the best meal you have ever had the anticipation of some sexual experience, proper or improper, something you bought, some way you spent your money, some TV show that you couldn't wait for the finale, it comes and it goes and it doesn't last. And that's what Solomon found. In contrast, the love of God endures forever. Romans 8 will tell us that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Because it goes on and on and on. And so the only way to find eternal meaning and significance and joy is to plug ourselves in to the greatest pleasure in the universe, the pleasure of knowing the love of God. The pleasures of this earth disappoint because they are short-lived Pleasure is a disappointing deity as well because it can destroy us. All of us know that on one level or another. We recognize that there are certain pleasures that can destroy. Uh, Many of us have seen friends or family or perhaps even in our own lives, we've seen the destruction of an addiction to alcohol or some substance, some drug. And you see how that can destroy a person quickly and destroy their relationships quickly. There are other pleasures that destroy us more slowly. We are less aware of the destruction that they are wreaking in our lives because that destruction happens over a long period of time. A couple of weeks ago when I was researching for this talk, uh, Burger King released a new burger on their menu. It looks like this. This is a picture of it and it is called something like the extra long garlicky buttery burger. Uh, I'm not making up that name. That's what it's called. Uh, It is not the highest calorie item on the menu. It's somewhere around 710 calories. Uh, The highest calorie on the menu is around 1,200 calories. It's the triple whopper. But this is drizzled in garlic and butter and mayonnaise and two, uh, or I guess it's an extra long patty of meat. It's not actually two. It is one fused together right at the hip. Uh, Two pieces of cheese. This thing is enormous. And you know, you know that if you eat it every day, you will die. Right? You and I recognize if you go there every day and you eat this, your lifespan will be shortened. It will clog your arteries. You will have a heart attack. You will die. So there are many of you in this room that you look at it and you say, that is disgusting and I don't want to go near it. There are others of you nudging your spouse right now saying, we are going there after church today. Okay? Why? Because it kills you slowly. And you're not always aware of the damage that it is doing. And so in the moment, it looks so good. And we often don't think about the long-term consequences. And many of the pleasures of our life operate exactly like that. I will never forget being in college in a Bible study with a group of other young men. And one day, a young man in the study came in and he confessed to us that he had engaged in an inappropriate sexual behavior and gone to a place that he should not have gone in the first place. And here is what he said, and I never will forget these words. He said it was a few moments of pleasure followed by hours sitting by the lake 
wondering whether I should drown myself. Because from the inside out, his addiction to pleasure was killing him. Destroying his relationships and fraying his walk with God. And pleasure can destroy when we turn it into a God. I ran across a study from 2014 that talked about the effects of pornography on the brains of those who engage in it. And what they found was, uh, like any pleasure, uh, sexuality, it, it releases a chemical in your brain called dopamine. You, think about, you should think about dopamine kind of as a reward chemical. It's something in your brain that says uh, you should pursue this pleasure. And in fact, it's something that God created because sex and food, they keep us and our human race alive, right? So God made us to respond that way. The challenge with illicit sexuality and particularly pornography is because of the illusory and high volume nature of it on the internet. It releases extra amounts of dopamine into a person's system where they get this huge hit like a drug. But the problem is the next time the same image or type of image does not satisfy and produce the same level of dopamine. So you go for something more and more and more exciting. And what they found was the men and women who were addicted to this drug, it was devastating their ability to have an ordinary and appropriate sexual relationship, particularly in a marital context. Because something that God created to be good had been twisted into a God and actually destroyed the happiness that these young men and women, and older men and women, by the way, were seeking after. They have found that overeating works in much the same way. A good apple just doesn't taste as sweet after you've had a triple chocolate cupcake, does it? And it's not that there's anything wrong every so often with a sugary treat. The question is this, has the pleasure of my life turned into something I cannot escape, something that I will not be happy without, something that I am willing to allow my relationship with God and others to suffer for. And if so, it has become a deity we worship rather than a gift God has made to draw us to him. Paul Brand, in his excellent book called The Gift of Pain, writes this, scientists have identified a pleasure center in the brain which can be stimulated directly. Researchers have planted electrodes in the hypothalamuses of rats who are then placed in a cage in front of three levers. Pressing the first releases a piece of food, the second lever yields a drink, and the third activates electrodes that give the rats an immediate but transient feeling of pleasure. In these experiments, the rats choose to press only the pleasure lever day after day until they starve to death. Why respond to hunger and thirst when they can experience the pleasures associated with eating and drinking in a more convenient way? My guess is that there are even some in this room that you identify even with with those rats. Say, I keep pulling the lever and I know it's killing me. It's hurting my relationship with God. It's hurting my relationship with my spouse, with my family. And I can't stop. 
And the good news is that there is grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but there is also the power to overcome through the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. Pleasure is short-lived, but pleasure can destroy us. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, Solomon says this, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. The more we chase after pleasure, the more it's a striving after the wind. Because pleasure and joy and happiness, the things that we are seeking are found ultimately in God alone. Pleasure is short-lived. Pleasure can destroy us. And pleasure can also blind us. Pleasure can blind us to the tasks God has called us to pursue. Pleasure can blind us to the reality of why God has made us and why we are in the world. Pleasure can keep us from pursuing those things God wants us to chase after. Right? It can blind us. In Ecclesiastes 5.20, Solomon says this, For a man will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. In other words, in a good sense, pleasure, like we said earlier, can minimize the pain of our lives. It can also uh, dull the reality that we are all going to die, right? And so Solomon says, God can keep you occupied with the gladness of heart. The flip side of that is that we simply forget God altogether. And that's what happened in the life of Solomon. In fact, as you read first Kings 11, Solomon particularly had a challenge in the area of sex. And so he said, I will chase after many concubines and many wives. And first Kings 11 says it pulled his heart away from God and it led to the judgment of the nation itself, the splitting of the nation of Israel into two halves. And Solomon's family and Solomon's country reaped the consequences for generations because he was blinded to why he was king in the first place, to reflect the wisdom and joy of God. All too often we seek distraction from what God has called upon us to do because what God has called upon us to do is difficult and it takes effort and time. Uh, While I was preparing for this sermon, I found it to be a difficult sermon in many respects to prepare for, uh, for a number of reasons. There were uh, things I had to read about and think about that I would just as soon not have known, Uh, but also it, it is just, there's a work that is a company that accompanies preaching and studying the word of God. Right? But there's also a corresponding pleasure when I preach and I am able to say later, that went well and I felt like I communicated the word of God accurately and appropriately. There's a corresponding pleasure. But here's the catch. It's a long-term pleasure that requires me to defer short-term pleasures along the way, particularly short-term distractions. And so I know for me, as I studied for this, my particular distraction that I struggled to resist was called Facebook. Because when it's difficult to think and difficult to study, you can get an immediate hit of pleasure and approval from Facebook, right? That little red number says somebody liked something I did and that makes me feel good. And so we settle for lesser pleasures instead of the greater ones. Think about marriage itself, right? Marriage to love one person well 
in the way God had intended over a lifetime takes work. It's difficult, right? If you're sitting in the room and you say, now it's easy for me, don't tell the rest of us that, right? (laughs) For most people, it takes work and prayer and humility And yet there is a pleasure in having a marriage that reflects God's character that is greater than the short-term pleasures of pornography or adultery. And yet all too often, we settle for lesser pleasures. There's a pleasure in having a body that works like it's supposed to, that is fit and in shape, but it's a long-term pleasure, right? And it is difficult in the moment to look at that long-term pleasure and defer the short-term pleasure of that cupcake. Or for me, the homemade chocolate chip cookie or taco or whatever it may be, right? The greatest pleasure of our lives is found in knowing God. But for men and women who have trusted in Jesus, to know him takes time and submission to his spirit and study of the word of God, and prayer, and it is a lifelong pursuit that is not found easily. And so we look for short-term pleasures, and the danger is that those short-term pleasures simply distract and blind us from what God really wants for our lives, which is to know the unending, perfect, and pure pleasure of a relationship with him. And so pleasure is a good gift that God has made to point us to him and to remind us of who he is. But it can destroy. It can be destructive. And the question for us is, have we, like Solomon, turned pleasure into something that we worship rather than something we enjoy that points us to God. If so, we like Solomon will find that the happiness we seek is always just beyond our grasp because it will always let us down. Pleasure cannot bear the weight of our hopes and our dreams. And the more we chase after it, the less content we are with what God has given. Paul Brand later in his book says this, a double irony is at work. Just as a society that conquers pain and suffering seems less able to cope with what suffering remains, so a society that pursues pleasure runs the risk of raising expectations ever higher so that contentment lies tantalizingly out of reach. That's exactly what Solomon found when he turned pleasure into something that he worshipped. I think to varying degrees, all of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, could identify some pleasure that we would say, without this thing in my life, I would be unhappy, I would be discontent, and yet this thing that I pursue, this pleasure I pursue, never really gives me deep contentment, but I keep chasing after it, believing that maybe the next experience, the next buzz that I'm anticipating will bring me contentment and pleasure. There are others in this room that some pleasure you began to pursue that you thought was small, even though it was inappropriate, whether it was pornography or some other type of 
illicit pleasure. You began to pursue it, and now you have found that instead of you controlling it, it controls you. And it has become something you serve and obey. And it's turned into a God in your life. Have you and I turned those things that are good into an object of worship and thereby we worship something God created rather than the creator? And we're headed to a place of damage in our relationships and our walk with God. If we have done that, then what what do we do? Where do we go to begin to trust in God? Let me offer just a few thoughts as we close. First this, as we've been saying, seek pleasure in God first. In John chapter 15, 9 through 11, Jesus says that uh, if you keep his commandments, you will abide, you will remain in his love. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, look, I'm saying this so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be full. You see what Jesus is getting at? He's saying the way to have fullness of joy, the greatest pleasure in life, actually, and it's very counterintuitive to us, is to submit to God. To obey his commandments because God has designed the world in such a way that the boundaries he has drawn around our pleasure are not to make us sad, but in fact to provide us with the greatest enjoyment of pleasure and happiness in the universe. And that is a strong relationship with him and an appropriate understanding of the life he's given us. And so we are called to seek God as our highest pleasure and trust that he will give us joy from himself. It may be that uh, you do not yet know God through Jesus Christ. You may be here and in your life you know that you're chasing some pleasure, whether it is spending money to fill your life with beautiful things. Maybe it is entertainment. It's just video games and TV shows and even books and good things. Maybe it is sexuality. Maybe it is food and you're chasing after short-term pleasures to fill yourself up. And the message of the scripture is that real life begins when we trust in Jesus Christ to start a relationship with God because Jesus died, first of all, to forgive us for all of the times that you and I have worshiped things other than him. He rose again. He defeated the death that results from our sin. And now he offers life, eternal life that begins now through the power of his spirit and joy that begins now through the power of his spirit for all who trust in him. For those who know him, do we first and foremost seek to find joy and pleasure in him? In God first. Secondly, don't be afraid to enjoy earthly pleasures, but keep them within their proper boundaries. Recognize that they will never satisfy the deepest needs of our heart and soul, but at their best, they are short moments to point us to God's goodness. Everything God has made is good, but it is not God himself. And then thirdly, when you need help, seek help. I say when, not if, because I believe that at different points in our lives, all of us need help from the body of Christ, perhaps to overcome 
some addiction, perhaps simply to reset our course when we begin to struggle with those temptations that would lead us away from God. Seek help if you need to by talking with a friend who knows Jesus, who can draw you closer to him, perhaps with a counselor. There is no shame in saying, I need to talk with somebody who has some understanding and expertise of this issue. And there are men and women who know Jesus that we can recommend to you. You can talk to me or one of the pastors. We have a Celebrate Recovery program. You can find information about that program on our website. There are so many avenues to seek help when you need it through the body of Christ and through the power of God's spirit. But it requires you and me to humble ourselves and admit that we've turned something good into a God. And we all do it at different times in our lives. And so will you and I be willing to ask for help? Will we be willing to submit our bodies, our minds, our spirits to the patient and gracious and joyful movement of the spirit so that we can transform more and more into the image of Jesus Christ so that the world around us can see the true pleasure that comes from knowing him, that comes from a relationship with God and so that we can live the lives that God has called us to in which the joy of the Lord is full because he is a good God who loves to give good gifts and wants for us all that he came to give through the death and resurrection of his son and the gracious gift of his spirit in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. It is convicting and even at times it is challenging to read because we are so aware of how we fail. I know that even now there are those sitting in this room who are aware they need to take simply the next step to find help, to find someone who will hold them accountable in a real and ongoing way, or perhaps to talk to a pastor, a counselor, perhaps just to reset course, Father, and find pleasure in you, to read your word, to seek you in prayer. I pray that, Lord, we would never fall into the trap of believing that simply doing the right things will please you and provide us with eternal life. But instead, we would recognize that obedience to your commands brings us the greatest joy we could possibly hope for. I pray we would pursue you. We thank you for this time and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.